And we proceed directly to a discussion of the scholarly work on uh, who Jesus really was, what he really did, what he was really about, or even the possible question of, did he really exist? Uh, scholars have been seized of those questions for a long time, way back in the early days of Christianity, and then uh, beginning about 200 years ago, uh, or 250 years ago. Um, my guests are both uh, involved in that kind of scholarship. Uh, the first is an old and treasured friend, uh, Professor John Dominic Crossan, who is Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at DePaul, but um, just uh, like um, uh, another person mentioned in the Bible, uh, just for uh, uh, 30 pieces of sunshine he left us <laughs> some while ago, uh, or maybe 300 days of constant sunshine. That is, uh, uh, Dominic Crossan moved to Florida. It turns out about 20 years ago, but was a very frequent guest on this program while he was here in Chicago and is here again, I'm very happy to say, uh, tonight or rather this afternoon. Our other guest is Professor Raymond Pickett, who is also a professor of New Testament um, studies, that at the Lutheran School of Theology uh, in Chicago. Before those two guests get a chance to say a word, some quite appropriate music. That, of course, is Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring uh, by Bach. Um, and you could go to almost anything by Bach and find something relevant to the worship uh, of Jesus. <clears throat> but uh, John uh, Dominic Crossan, uh, Jesus has been, in a way, the joy of man's desiring, but he's also been the source of a lot of trouble over the last 2,000 years, has he not? Yes, I think Jesus was a peasant with an attitude. And for many Christians, or for most Christians, that attitude is the attitude of God. You've done some 25 books. A new one is just now in hand, and we'll talk about it later. But the first major one was titled The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish uh, Peasant. Think the three words. Mediterranean really is a nice way of saying Roman because the Romans ran the Mediterranean mm -hmm. in the first century, except they didn't want to call him a Roman Jewish peasant. That would be confusing. Hmm. Jewish is every bit as important. The matrix has to be the first century Israel under the process of Romanization. You can't leave Roman out. That's the elephant in the room. Hmm. And he is a peasant. That's the class he belongs to. That's the people he talked especially to. And you can see that especially in his parables. And there are some... Uh, asking the persisting question, which has persisted for those 2,000 years, asking what was he really after? What was his real purpose? What was his real intent? There are some who give the answer, he was trying to stir up a rebellion against Rome. That's not the common answer, but there are some scholars who've opted for that. He was interested in a non-violent revolution against Rome, as were many other Jewish people in the same period he was living in, by the way. Nonviolent. Nonviolent revolution. If you look at the period between, say, 4 BCE, there was a major revolution in the Jewish homeland, an armed revolution. 
2,000 people were crucified in Jerusalem. If you look 70 years later, 66, the Romans again were back with their legions and the temple will be burned down in 70. In between, in the 70 years in between, there were massive non-violent protest movements mm. in the Jewish homeland. Jesus is in that general matrix. Well, there's a very strong point, a very strong interpretation. Uh, first reaction to it from Raymond Pickett. Yes. Um, well, first of all, let me just say uh, it's an honor to be here with uh, Professor Cross. And I mean, I've actually been very influenced by his his work and, and have a similar perspective on that. I mean, the actually his <laughs> book marked a major shift in historical Jesus studies. Before that, um, th there was a famous book by Ed Sanders who um, sort of depicted Jesus as leading a renewal movement within Judaism, and I think most people agree with that, that mm -hmm. he was re leading a renewal movement within Judaism, but saw him almost exclusively as just a religious leader. And what happened with, with uh, Dominic's book, and a shift, I think, methodologically at that time was people began to use sociology and anthropology to look more at the context. And so that shift mm -hmm. really changed things. And so I, I, my take on it is very similar in the sense <laughs> that I, I view Jesus as sort of leading one of these prophetic, nonviolent prophetic renewal movements. I think he functioned primarily as a, as a popular prophet, I don't, not, in the, or not an oracular prophet, but a popular prophet. Uh, somebody who graced the theological faculty or the divinity school faculty at mm. the University of Chicago for a while was Samuel Sandmel. Mm. Uh, a Jewish scholar yeah. of Christian origins. And Sandmel, of course, said that Jesus was one of many messianic claimants mm -hmm. that who flourished in the land at that time. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that we know that now. There are a lot of different ideas of Messiah and different claims of that. I mean, I, I mean, this would be an interesting point of conversation. I don't think Jesus is making a lot of claims for himself along the line. I think he gets attributed with those those sort of titles, um, but I think he's he is functioning within sort of a particular definition of a messianic vocation. There are some uh, uh, English uh, clergyman or theologian or mere historian who um, did a book many years ago titled "The First Christian," and that turns out to be uh, Saint Paul rather than Jesus. Uh, Paul is for me an absolutely faithful, maybe the most faithful in the entire New Testament interpreter of Jesus in the wider urban context of the Roman Empire. Jesus was working primarily in the small towns and villages. But does Paul remain a Jew till Absolutely. Till his death? Yes. Now, other, there's many other Jews who would say no. Yes, that's right. But they would also say that of Jesus. But right. for Paul, he lived and he died as a Jew, as far as he was concerned. A controversial Jew? Of course. <laughs> maybe there are always controversial Jews. But as far as he was concerned, he was not founding a new religion. <laughs> he was bringing Judaism to its full perfection. Other people, other Jews, said, no way. The people down at Qumran would not have agreed with him, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, Qumran uh, being the base for... The Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead sea for scrolls. Mm. That makes Paul a controversial Jew. It doesn't make him a non-Jew. Yeah. Um, a great book appeared early in the 20th century. As near as we can remember it, it's the year 1906 by, it's interesting, we started with a selection from Bach by a great performer of Bach. That's right. Uh, which uh, Albert Schweitzer was, as well mm -hmm. as being a, a missionary physician in Africa, mm -hmm. uh, and also, of course, being a great theological scholar. And uh, he undertook as a fairly young man to do a book about all the conflicting theories about 
who Jesus really was. Uh, indeed, the search for the historical Jesus. The full title, as I remember, is von, uh, von Reimar zum Reder. Those are two people who, the, one of the first and one of the most recent, who studied and tried to reconstruct the historical Jesus. And the subtitle is Der Besuch dem historischen Jesu, The Search for the Historical Jesus. How many searchers have been working in that uh, territory for how long? Now, I suppose about 2,000 years, really. You could go back to Paul and consider him the first searcher. Mm -hmm. But I think what's fascinating about that book is that it starts us back into the Jewish matrix of mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. What it doesn't get us back into, it couldn't get us back fully into the Jewish matrix. We didn't have, say, the Dead Sea Scrolls and many other documents. But it doesn't get us into the religio-political matrix. Mm -hmm. And that's a distinction we can't avoid because... In the first century, if you looked at a Roman coin, for example, it said that Caesar was the son of God. Well, that's a political statement. That's a religious statement. So you can't look at Jesus as if he was an exclusively religious figure. Mm -hmm. Rome did not crucify exclusively religious figures. Interesting. So when Jesus pulls out a coin in response to the question of, uh, well, for which is, yeah. however the question is formulated, this answer Taxes. is, render unto God that which is God and unto yeah. Caesar that which is Caesar's, and that's the coin. But that coin tells us that Caesar is God? Yeah, if, if it was a coin of, say, Augustus or Tiberius was the <coughs> resident at the yeah. time, it would have said he was Fili, um, Divi Filius, son of God in Latin. If he turned it over, it would have said he was the supreme pontiff, the high priest of Roman imperial theology. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether Jesus smiled a bit when he read it, that this <laughs> is the son of God, but <laughs> yes. How many different interpreters of the historical Jesus, does Schweitzer review in that Ooh. important book? I, I don't remember. He said dozen at yeah. least. Yes. Oh. And they are various different views. One basic thing on which they agree, or rather where one might agree or one might disagree with uh, yet another in the same group, is the crucial question of the, the divinity of Jesus. Was Jesus in any sense an emanation from or a part of the true and eternal God, or was he merely an elevated and exceptional man. Uh, does yeah. Schweitzer come to a conclusion on that question? Yeah, not very clearly. No, but basically, I think the core issue was, was Jesus a great teacher of sublime moral truths? Okay, that was one thing. The problem is that everyone agreed even then that what Jesus talked about was called the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And that was... How would this world be if God sat on Caesar's throne? What would the world be like if, you know, if God drew up the, um, the income tax report or something? What would the budget look like if God drew it up? Mm. So that's the issue. Is Jesus just telling, is Jesus a liberal or radical, to put it bluntly? But Jesus also tells us, if we are to believe uh, those sayings attributed to him, that uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. It will come in your lifetime, he's mm -hmm. saying to those who hear him. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the big debates about the, the kingdom, about there, there are kingdom sayings about it being present, kingdom sayings about it being future, and, and so that's been a big debate in scholarship. And, and I, I mean, this is actually where I think we still live under Schweitzer's shadow in the mm -hmm. sense of even today there's still, I think, a popular view is that he was an apocalyptic prophet, some, somehow proclaiming the end. And um I actually think that's—I don't agree with that. I, you don't agree with no. that. Um, I think that's a, 
a layer of the tradition. And I, I actually think even the way we read apocalyptic is contested. So, I mean, that's, but, but Schweitzer's influence is still strong in that regard. I think. What should one mean by apocalyptic in that context? Well, I mean, what Schweitzer meant by it, I mean, it was a kind of an end of the world scenario, right? The idea yeah. that, that, that this world would end and there'd be a new <clears throat> regime, the God's regime. Um, but then what happened is that, I mean, and, and as, as Dom said, the, the, I mean, the, the, the great thing about Schweitzer is he was actually reading all these Jewish texts, mm-hmm. um, which people had not been doing. Um, and, and then since then, we've really discovered there's a, the, it's just a great diversity in Judaism. But I think that, that most people now would say apocalyptic actually does have a political edge, that it's a res- it was a response to empire. What I disagree with, and I think Dom disagrees with, is the idea is the, is the sort of preeminence of an end-of-the-world scenario. I think yeah. that's not characteristic. Um, I look to you for a response to the Basic Creed, and here is a recital of the Basic Creed, mm. the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered, and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again, with glory, to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end." and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. In one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Raymond Pickett, as you hear that, and of course it's very familiar. You've probably recited it in your time, if not sure. um, this morning. Uh, what can you accept? Well, I mean, if we're talking about the historical Jesus, the only thing historical in that creed is that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So the mm-hmm. rest is sort of confessional. So it's theological. So there, so the, it's the question of what's the relationship between that confession and history. But and we're told he is of one substance with God. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he, he is God, mm-hmm. an emanation of God. Yeah, I mean the problem with that is that that what is that that's from a later period when Christianity it's from the uh, Council of Nicaea, right? Exactly. Which is what the fourth century, fourth century, yeah. right? Um, so I mean, first of all, there in the first century there is no Christianity. I mean, this is all within Judaism. These are this is a movement within Judaism, even as it moves throughout the the empire. And so, so from a Jewish perspective, any kind of sense of divinity would be again, as Dom was saying, is that of divine agency, that God acts through human beings. Um, and so that they are anointed or empowered, authorized to speak and act for God. So that, that would be the model of divinity, I would say, in antiquity. Same question to Dom Crossman. What do you hear in the creed, as we've just heard it read in a modernized uh, uh, version, I think, just modernized in terms of the uh, 
uh, the uh, okay. What orders. I hear is this: but What do you hear that you can believe? Nobody. I believe all of it. How I read it is another question, uh -huh. because I'm aware of what happened in the beginning of the fourth century, and the problem is this: for three hundred years, Christianity has been opposing the emperor. That was lovely. Mm -hmm. Now the emperor joins you. Right. The emperor still has a halo. The emperor is still divine. Now you got a problem. Mm. You got a divine human being down here with the army and a divine human being up in heaven with the angels. Who's running the show? So <laughs> the obvious thing was they came together because what they had to do at the Nicene <laughs> in the great summer palace of the emperor without preferably getting killed was how to explain that Jesus was above you, your emperorship. They drew up a creed whose point was that the emperor was below Jesus. And that immediately after that was explained to Constantine, he went Arian. Hmm. Arian in what sense? Arian, is, Arian was a belief at the same time that Jesus was sort of half divine and half human. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's what the emperor was. It's a theologian whose name we spell A-R-I-A-N. Arius of Alexandria. Yeah. Now, I try to imagine myself as a bishop, <laughs> I'm sitting there <laughs> with the emperor up there on the throne as supreme bishop. I mean, uh -huh. He's running the show. He's called together about 200 bishops, and it's lovely. He's brought them here We're using the imperial mail. We're big shots. Now, our job is to get Jesus above the emperor without getting killed and getting <laughs> home in one piece. Uh -huh. So their language of one substance with the father that's Greek philosophical language, right. and my faith as a Christian does not depend on Greek philosophical language. But were I there in 325 or whenever, I don't think I'd have done any better you would have without getting mm -hmm. myself killed. <laughs> How do I say what happened afterwards was Eusebius of Nicomedia took, took the emperor aside and said, you know, you just got sideswiped. If Jesus is of one substance with the Father, dump to dump to dump, he's above you. Hmm. Huh? Says Constantine. So that's what it was all about. Yes, you're. What, what does Constantine do about it? He became Arian. That's not mentioned all the time. Yeah. Every emperor of the fourth century, except Julian the Apostate, who had another agenda, was Arian because they suddenly realized this Athanasian hmm. creed means that we're a, we're not the same. It should be just there's a divine Jesus up in heaven. Fine, that's he's up there. Doesn't bother anyone. Now I'm the divine emperor down here on earth running the show. Mm. So Arianism for them was, well, he's an elevated creature, uh, Jesus was, but he's basically a man, a man elevated far beyond our moral imperfection. Exactly, and elevated up to heaven where he won't interfere with anyone. Yeah. So this is, when, this is when Christianity makes the terrible decision that we're about the next world, and we let the emperor, Christian emperor, of course, run this world. I've got another biblical reading for you that I want you to hear, or a first biblical reading. The Nicene Creed is not from the Bible itself, uh, but we return uh, to that after we pause for this. And we return to Professors Pickett and Crossan, uh, Raymond Pickett of the um, uh, Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago and John Dominic Crossan um, of the Department of Religious Studies at DePaul University, uh, in which he is Professor Emeritus, meaning he now lives in Florida exactly. and lives the good life. I'm glad to know. for living in Florida. <laughs> exactly. Um, I wanted to, uh, there's so much we could take from the New Testament. Here's something you will recognize. Um, I'm not sure whether this is Matthew, Mark, or Luke. You will know 
once you hear the wording. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings. He said, Rabbi. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Yes, Master. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Raymond Pickett, you have your undergraduate degree from Oral Roberts University. Mm-hmm. Um, if a professor at Oral Roberts were sitting with us right now and I asked him, what does that tell you and what do you believe, what would he respond? Well, I don't know what one would, would do now. I mean, I, I think what you're asking, I mean, there there's a kind of a... I'm asking range. about Christian fundamentalism. Yeah, exactly. There, there are kind of literal readings of that and, and I think um, most of us would say that that they're that these are symbolic texts that that represent something real, but they're they're symbolic stories at some level. But they tell us that Jesus is a man of miracles, uh, rising from the dead is the ultimate miracle. Uh, more than one uh, more or less traditional Christian scholar has said, even on this very program, that uh, unless you accept the resurrection as real, as a real resurrection arising from the dead, you cannot be a Christian. The trouble with that professor, whoever that professor was... Came from Moody Bible Institute, undoubtedly. Well, that's a confusion between the real and the literal. Mm-hmm. I would agree, if you're a Christian, you accept the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. The question is, is it metaphorical or literal? There, the most real thing in this whole world is metaphor. We live by metaphor, mm-hmm. we die for metaphor. So to put the real against the metaphorical... Well, we don't know who wrote... Th- uh, or what group or committee wrote uh, the gospel according to Matthew, but uh, can we assume that they meant it to be me- viewed as metaphorical when they wrote it? I'll tell you why. If we backed up in Matthew, we'd find that all sorts of other people rose with Jesus. 
What happened to them all of a sudden in, in Christian history? Matthew is the one who tells that the tombs were opened, mm -hmm. and therefore there was a lot of empty tombs around Jerusalem. If you just focus on Jesus' tomb, you could easily argue mm -hmm. one tomb was found. What about all the other empty tombs? Did nobody notice that all the prophets seemed to be gone? All the patriarchs, they thought they knew their tombs. So, yes, I'm willing to say that they took it really. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. But they took it metaphorically because they knew that it wasn't just a matter of one empty tomb or finding the empty tomb. What about all the other empty tombs? And that, by the way, is the way Eastern Christianity, mm -hmm. which is far closer to Jewish Christianity than Western Christianity, has always depicted on its icons, mosaics, frescoes, everything, the Easter image. Jesus is never rising alone in Eastern Christianity. That would be tacky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he has a whole group of people, and the prime person is Adam and Eve. He raises the whole human race with him. Mm -hmm. So what exactly, then, is the implicit metaphor? The Im Well, <laughs> the explicit metaphor. Or the metaphor, explicit metaphor. Because as soon as you say metaphor, you have to ask for meaning. Yeah. It is basically that Rome in this case, the imperial power of the world, executed Jesus. And God not only reversed that, mm -hmm. but in reversing it, declared that the rule of the earth is not the power of Rome or any other uh, violent power. It's not just about Rome, but nonviolent power. Jesus is always shown, for example, I mentioned Eastern iconography. He's always shown carrying a symbolic cross. His wounds are usually evident. He's standing on the crossed gates of Hades. This is the triumph over death, because the only thing that triumphs over death in our world is nonviolent resistance. Violence creates death. If you turn on your radio on um, a Sunday, or even uh, certain stations any time of the day, uh, you will hear fundamentalist Christianity rather strongly represented in preachment or in application to common uh, daily experience, but you certainly get a religious doctrine as well. And the doctrine that one hears most commonly on the radio, I say, mm -hmm. uh, is uh, that this was a, Jesus did true miracles. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, he produced uh, right. the multitude of loaves and fishes, and um, he rose. And maybe they don't really talk about others rising with him, no, no. as a matter of fact. It's skipped. But um, Christian belief of the fundamentalist variety is quite different from what the two of you are mm. rather agreeing upon. What's the distribution of the difference of belief? Who believes what? With regard, essentially, to the issue of the divinity of Jesus. Well, I, a couple things. I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't think the problem is just literal versus metaphorical. I think that's an issue. I think the other issue is individualistic versus communal, which, which he's yeah. pointed to here, that, mm -hmm. that, that we see, I mean, I read these texts, I think Jesus is leading a movement, it's about community, I think the execution, crucifixion is is Rome's political response to Jesus, and resurrection is God's political response to that, to some extent. But the other thing that's happening there in resurrection, it's not just about the authority, it's about, um, the they're all commissioning stories, in other words, they're all sent back to Galilee, which is this place where the the, the movement is, 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 it continues, right, and, and spreads. So it's, it's this, I mean, the kingdom is a new sociality. It's not, it's not just individual. And so these are political, social metaphors. They're not individualistic metaphors. I think that's one of the main differences, not just the literal 
uh, metaphorical, although I totally agree with him. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's what's at stake in the difference between the literal and the metaphorical. Yeah. The literal is about, it's all about Jesus. Yeah. The metaphorical is about Jesus as the leader still of a worldwide movement right. that's transforming the world. A fellow named Weaver um, at the University of Chicago Weaver. some 60 or 70 years ago uh, did a book uh, with a very significant title, um, Ideas Have Consequences. Hmm. Uh, one wonders, what then were the consequences of these ideas uh, in their time? What did Christianity do as it altered history? How did it alter history? How did it, for that matter, transform, if it did, uh, the situation of of mankind itself? I raise those slight questions as we pause for some commercials. Looking forward, certainly, to your response. As we return to John Dominic Crossan and to Raymond Pickett, uh, with a quick uh, and passing mention, though later we'll have more to say about it, that John uh, Dominic Crossan's newest book, we figure it's 25th or 26th in line, is uh, just published. It's titled, How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian. Subtitle, Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis through Revolution. Fascinating concept, and we'll come to it in a while. But the basic question I was raising right now is, um, if ideas uh, have consequences, what consequences did the early Christianity we're talking about directly have? Well, what we've all agreed on, and this is almost a consensus of scholarship, also called a miracle, by the way, is that <laughs> Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, which is, in, <laughs> listen to the term, it's an intensely political, religious, religious, mm -hmm. political term. And it meant, as I said before, what would the world be like if God ran it? And of course, Caesar's response to that is, excuse me, I am God and I am running it um, and you're in trouble. So we have a different vision of how the world should be. And it is, how would a world be like if it had distributive justice instead of retributive justice? Mm. How what does retributive means? Kill the person who's killed or, well, yes. and thereabouts. What does distributive justice distributive mean? Distributive justice means, when it's coming out of the Jewish matrix of the entire Torah into mm -hmm. the gospel, mm -hmm. means how does everyone get a fair share of God's world? Not a fair share of my world because I'm a nice guy and I'm into charity or something, but how does everyone get a fair share of a world, in Genesis 1, given to people to be run for God? How do you get a fair share of it? That's what the kingdom of God is about. And that's, of course, what's going to get Jesus killed. So you have a new vision, maybe other religions have the same, but you have a new vision coming out of uh, Judaism into the great Roman world and it's insisting on a fair distribution of the world that belongs to God. That has consequences, mm. serious consequences. Is this, in a sense, uh, an early version of what these days we call socialism? It really isn't, because socialism is liberal, this is much more radical than we've ever imagined. Mm -hmm. It really is a radical. And it's not fair to take any person who is a radical. Then should we call it communism? No, 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 because it presumes that God owns the world. Uh-huh. That's very different from saying that the government owns the world or mm. the, anyone owns the world. It's coming out of the vision of the very meaning of the world. It's making the claim that the world won't run any other way. Go ahead, run it any way you want. And see how, for example, imperialism works. See well, again, works. then I raise the question, and what consequences did these ideas have? We know that Christianity spread. Right. It took a while, but it certainly spread. By the time you reach the first century A.D. or thereabouts, and in Rome, uh, people like 
is Tacitus first century or second? Tacitus, beginning of the second century. So beginning of second century. He's complaining about the Christians who kind of spread uh, trouble around and <laughs> yeah. disease. Yeah. yeah. They're a, a pestiferous yes. presence in our otherwise glorious city. Yes, he describes Christianity. It's very interesting. He agrees with Josephus at the end of the first century, the Jewish historian. Josephus and Tacitus agree. There was a movement. It was over there in the Jewish homeland in Israel. The founder was this weird guy called Jesus Christ or whatever. We put him to death. And then they both sort of say, and can you believe it? That didn't stop the movement? And Tacitus charmingly says, it spread all the way to Rome where everything rotten arrives eventually. Yes, he does say that. But that's, that's precious, mm. precious information. Because mm. he doesn't like it. He thinks it's an obnoxious, <laughs> infectious theology. But he admits that it started with Jesus and spread everywhere to Rome, even by the beginning of the second century. Did it make a difference, at least, in how the Christians lived? Yeah, I think that's the main difference it makes. I don't, I don't think anybody would have become a part of this movement because it was a better belief system. I think what it, what it offered, it's a, it's a, um, it's an alter, it's an alternative community with with different with that that's organized around practices of solidarity and resistance. So it's a way of surviving in a world where. Ninety percent of the people live at subsistence level, and and so there's a, the political also has an economic aspect, and people are are caring for one another. So if they're actually enacting Jesus' teaching, then it's a very different communal way of life than than um, than what people are used to. I mean, I think that's the draw. And is it the case, as we're told historically, it is uh, as the as uh, the movies tell us, as uh, <laughs> other writers tell us, that lots and lots of Christians were in essence. Uh, killed for their Christianity. I, I think that's a little bit overblown. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that, uh, the, you know, that le legends grew up around that much later. I, I don't think... I think the Christians thrown to the lions in the Yeah, Colosseum. right. I mean, I think that's, that's a little bit over, overly dramatized. I mean, I do think there's persecution um, in the sense that people are socially ostracized and when it moves into the urban mm -hmm. context for, for being a part of this movement. Because think about it, if you're... If you're um, if you're a Jew in this movement, then you're somewhat marginalized, maybe in in the traditional Jewish community. And if you're a Gentile, what are you? You're no longer a pagan, or you're not really a Jew. So, so there's a kind of an ambivalence. Uh, it's kind of a liminal. It's sort of a liminal existence to some extent. I think. I agree. Yeah. the yeah. The Roman system, if you are a violent revolutionary, we came after you with everything, and we'll crucify the whole bunch of you in a row. If you're a nonviolent revolutionary, that is, if you're against our basic system, nonviolently, mm -hmm. we'll pick off your leaders. That happens to John the Baptist under Antipas. It happens to Jesus mm -hmm. under, under Pilate. That's the procedure. And it's one of the ways that we know for sure, for historically sure, that Jesus was a nonviolent revolutionary. Otherwise, they wouldn't have wasted the crucifixion on him, and they would have crucified all his, <laughs> his followers that could get their hands on if he mm -hmm. was violent. So... Exactly what Ray said. There was without doubt a certain amount of discrimination. If you were in a locality, for example, and we were celebrating the, the local God who protected our mm -hmm. town or protected our street, and you wouldn't come out and, and play, yeah, there could be nasty pogroms against Jews and against mm -hmm. Jewish Christians or against Gentile Christians. But the serious stuff was when the empire looked at your system mm -hmm. and got a glimpse that somehow we know you're not violent. We really do know that. But... Boy, you're 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 against us somehow, and we're going to pick off your leader to teach you a lesson. Now, it didn't work. 
because actually, of course, the worst thing you can really do is make martyrs. Mm -hmm. Now, if it was, say, in the year 50 or in the year 60 under Nero, let's say, Nero said Christianity is a forbidden religion. Anyone who is a Christian can be killed and you can take their goods. Delazio, turn them over. I don't think Christianity would have survived. That's the difference between genocide <laughs> and martyrdom. Mm. So, yes, leaders were killed. Pliny the Younger uh, is governor for a while Bithynia. of, of uh, what now includes uh, Israel and uh, the West well, Bank well, and so on. No, it's, this is Bithynia and Pontus on the south, southern coast of the Black Sea. So he's, he's just up, he's in modern Turkey, south oh, of the Black Sea. So it's, it's not uh, it's nearby, not, the, nearby. Israel, but there are lots of Jews there. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and there are increasingly Christians there. Right. And Pliny gets kind of preoccupied. What do I do with these people? Mm -hmm. And he writes to the emperor, I'm not sure which emperor, Trajan. to Trajan, and says, I got all these Christians uh, who don't worship you and so on. Uh, should I kill them or what? And what answer does he get from uh, Trajan? It, it, it's fascinating to read that correspondence because he's like, he's trying to be a good boy. Mm -hmm. He's writing home, you know, to the, to the boss to find yeah. out. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's fascinating, first of all, that he doesn't seem to know right. what to do. Yeah. It, it, but uh, Trajan's answer is a bit pompous. Um, well, if they're really obstinate and they won't even offer a little incense to our divinity, that's really contumacious. So by all means, put them to death if they're for persistence. But we don't take secret accusations. We don't do that sort of thing. So in one sense, it tells us that Christianity was having an effect mm -hmm. on the social circumstances because mm -hmm. the problem he's got is really not what the emperor worship. It's that it's bad for the sacrifices in the temple and people are com making complaints. But the, the serious thing is that the emperor, of course, is divine. So there's no problem with Jesus being divine. The emperor had no problem with that. Unless you're kind of saying that he is the divinity and somehow we aren't. That's called treason. Mm. And for that, we kill. But a few centuries later on, uh, the one emperor who really sees Christianity as a great threat and tries to uh, suppress it and get rid of it, eventually, as he dies, says, uh, Galilean, thou hast conquered. That's by 250, and then it's too late for Rome. Uh, mm. That's the, what, what's his name? Uh, um, there was conquered of pale Galilean. Who is that? I have to think. At any rate, it's acknowledging Christianity is here and mm. it's going to stay, and Galilean, thou hast conquered. We're now all going to be Christian. And that's before Constantine. That's mm -hmm. before Constantine. Yeah. I'd have to check who that was. I, I, the first time you had a full-blown persecution on Christianity as such mm -hmm. was about 250. That was under Decius, D-E-C-I-U-S. But, but how do they conquer? How does it come to be the case that by the time of Constantine, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire? Well, I mean, I think it's a complicated process, but um, so, I mean, somehow it, the, the movement grows exponentially as it spreads throughout the empire, but it's in tension with, with paganism. But there, there are, um, you know, there are apologists, there are people of status who begin to kind of represent it and mm -hmm. make convincing arguments and there's debates. And so I think there's a, I don't know where this turning point is, but there's a turning point at which actually becoming a Christian is no longer, it actually becomes a status marker, right? I mean, in yeah. society, it, where it begins to, the movement begins to to take hold and kind of win over paganism. Um, 
Um, and that has more to do, I think. And, and, but then again, the loss there is that it loses its moorings, I think, with Judaism. Then it becomes a, it becomes really grounded in Greco-Roman philosophy and ontology and all those things. So it's it it really cha- it really morphs into something. It continues to grow. Yeah, but it, it morphs into a belief system, I think, to some extent. Mm-hmm. It's still a social yeah. reality or practice, but and the yeah. sacred work uh, to which ultimately one goes. To uh, there are uh, there are hundreds, there are thousands, I suppose of uh, works of theological significance, but the sacred work, of course, is, quote, the Bible. That is, the Old and the New Testaments mm-hmm. taken together. Um, and uh, in many ways, uh, in some part, even those two Testaments seem to disagree with one another. Some have argued that that the Jewish God in the Old Testament mm. is a God of uh, vengeance, severity, yeah. and the Christian God in the New Testament is supposedly a God of love. But as Don points out in his new book, How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian. There's just as much vengefulness in the New Testament as there is in the old. Uh, as there is in the old. There is, um, this is, uh, in some sense, an ambivalent book in the way in which it conceives God's justice. That's the characterization of the yes. dilemma, mm-hmm. and Dom has an answer to that dilemma. I want to turn to all of that as we return after this. And let us come now directly to the question that I was uh, setting up for a moment ago. Again, the title of the new book by John Dominic Crossan uh, is How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian. That suggests, the very title does, that um, if you take the Bible seriously, it can give you some challenge and some confusion as to whether Christian life is really possible. And that's exactly right. Because if you read the entire Bible and you don't pick up the libel, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of vengeance and cruelty and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy, which really sounds good unless you read the Bible. Exactly. And then you get to the most violent book in the entire Bible is the book of Revelation, which Mm -hmm. is the last book in the Christian part of the Bible. So basically, is God a God of nonviolent distributive justice or a God of violent Mm -hmm. retributive justice? is the question that runs through the entire Bible from beginning to end. And my own answer, and the answer I think of Christianity within the Bible, is the historical Jesus, the incarnation for Christians, of course. Is Jesus violent or not? And my answer to that, I depend on good old Pilate. Pilate executed them, which tells me he thought him a revolutionary didn't round up his followers and give a row of crosses up there, his disciples at least. That tells me he thought he was nonviolent. So I get from Pilate, even if I have nothing else, granted that he crucified Jesus, didn't crucify his, his followers, his close followers, that Jesus was a nonviolent revolutionary against Roman law and order. When he washes his hands uh, to uh, distance himself from his dutiful uh, requirement to uh, condemn or to free Jesus. Uh, He says, I find no what in this man? No No guilt. No guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. Yet he crucifies him. Yeah, and that's exactly the point. What, What they are doing in the story, this is all four of them actually, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are mocking Pilate. They are allowing a Roman governor to listen to the mob as the story is told, that only happens in the arena. That means he's been allowed to turn a trial into a farce in the arena 
which is the only time they're allowed to shout and do what, do what we demand. Pardon uh, a kind of uh, a, a little uh, free associative number, but I can't resist this. There's a story by Anatole France. Do you happen to know it, either of you? In which Pontius Pilate, he's now finished with his work uh, and he's back in Rome. He's sort of retired. And mm-hmm. On the Roman street, he encounters somebody who used to be uh, yes. a legionnaire uh, under his command, and they chat and so on, and the guy starts talking about that fellow Jesus and the way you uh, uh, you finally condemned him to death, and that was yeah. sort of a tight time, wasn't it? And uh, Pilate mm-hmm. looks puzzled and mm-hmm. finally says, I do not remember the man. Yeah, I don't remember. Mm. What yeah. do you make of that as a story? I think it's marvelous because mm-hmm. probably that is accurate. Mm-hmm. It was just one one more minor minor incident in a in a in a ten year period he'd probably wish to forget. But you know what I think in Matthew when his wife tells him, you know, in Matthew have nothing to do with Jesus, which is the biblical basis that husbands should obey their wives, by the way. I think when he went back up that evening to the living quarters and had to report to his wife what happened, I think he must have said, Don't worry, dear. What happens in Jerusalem stays in Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, um, there's so many related questions, but really so basic is the division within Christianity. Uh, you can do it by naming denominations that fit on one side and denominations that fit on the other, or you can just do it by individuals. But the basic difference within Christianity to this day, surely, uh is around the question of whether Jesus is divine, whether Jesus is God. And uh, ordinary Christians who don't read theology and but go to uh, a Pentecostal church, say, uh, will certainly tell you he is God. He's the Son of God. Uh, it's God come to earth to save us, and he has redeemed our sins, and he will come again in clouds of glory, but we don't know when. But uh, that's but ultimately, there'll be a great conflagration. They go indeed to the book of to the Gospel according to John uh, in the New Testament to find their eschatology, their view of final things. And final things will happen, and then Jesus will come and reign, possibly for a thousand years. That's the that's the real meaning of the millennium uh, mm-hmm. for such fundamentalist Christians. But ultimately, it will all end, and the day of judgment comes. That's a view of Christianity held by many. Then, full denominations, and held by millions and millions of Christians. Uh, does the division that between that view of things and the view that both of you are indeed representing in this, to me, fascinating conversation, does that division persist? Will it persist eternally until, in fact, the day of judgment comes? Uh, t- to me, the, 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 the real issue there is, is the question of the correlation between what you believe and what you I mean, so a lot of the focus and what we're saying is on what Jesus is doing, what his movement was, what the program was, what he represents as a, as a kind of a new social political reality. Um, so, I mean, I, like Dom, I, I, I mean, I can, I, can say, I can say the creed with integrity, but what I mean by it has everything to do with what Jesus represents in terms of uh, renewal of life and um, uh, um, distributive justice and you know Torah centric kind of values. But do the Jesus believe Jesus as God believing Christians and the Jesus, uh, the Aryan Jesus believing Christians? Do they really get along? Uh, do they engage in discourse, or are these two separate realms? I raise that question even as we must pause for some commercials. But let's talk for a moment about these questions as they animate and possibly divide 
or do they not divide uh, the broad Christian community of the world? We will be directly back after this. I think a brief uh, interlude of music. And we return directly to Raymond Pickett and John Dominic Crossan in our conversation about uh, the study of the historical Jesus. I, I raised a big question a moment ago about the divisions persisting within uh, Christianity. But before I come to that, let me come to another more precisely uh, defined um, issue. There are those, you know, of course you know, uh, in the study of the historical Jesus who having undertaken such study and having looked at such evidence as they find, and there's very little evidence in the documents of antiquity. Uh, we only have one or two mentions of Jesus, uh, one indeed by Tacitus and another by Josephus, uh, maybe by Philo, Judaeus, or Judaicus, but basically all the Jesus we know is uh, in the New Testament. Uh, there are those who argue that, quite simply, the truth is Jesus never existed. He was invented to uh, suit the time and to suit the occasion. Is that position still held by any serious, quote, scholars? <laughs> you almost say, if they do, if, it's almost a circular argument. If they hold it, they're not serious. <laughs> they're not serious. <laughs> um, I would say it would be a very small minority. And I, even that might be even too strong a word. Yeah. There are certain people who do hold that position. I would not want to argue with them because I don't know how you argue if somebody says, well, everything we have is just simply part of the conspiracy. Mm -hmm. I think it is a little bit seduced by conspiracy theory. But isn't there a basic argument? Look, if uh, he were that important in those days, in that place, there would be some mention of him, sort of in the Jerusalem Times or something the equivalent thereof. Mm -hmm. But there's no mention of Jesus except essentially the New Testament. I remember years ago being in Peter Maritzburg in South Africa in the actual station where Gandhi was taken off the, uh -huh. the train and he said, this is where it all started for me. I doubt if that was mentioned in the paper the next morning or anyone else mm -hmm. knew it. So something did start that day. I mm -hmm. trust Gandhi's statement in his own memoir, this is where it all began for me, where I was humiliated. I'm not surprised there's no evidence of it. There's a nice monument there now, of course. But I don't think this would have made mm -hmm. the headlines anywhere. Something was started, and so often when something starts, nobody sees it starting. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned Gandhi. That gives me yet another thing I should put into our discussion right now before I come to the larger question that I have already signaled and posed. Yeah. Uh, what's happening 
in Christianity universally uh, these days? Does that division between the divine and the non-divine view of Jesus still persist? But still, deferring on that for just a moment, since you mentioned Gandhi, Gandhi, of course, is a great representative of a nonviolent resistance mm-hmm. um, and meeting uh, violence with, quote, love, or at least with submission. Yeah. So was Martin Luther King. So uh, are many others. Um, uh, you say that the purpose of this book essentially is to struggle with divine violence from Genesis through Revelation. That's the subtitle of the book. You run into a lot of divine violence. What then is the basic response that a good Christian should be making to God the violent, as you as you find him in uh, sacred text? What it comes down to for me is whether, speaking from within Christianity, yeah. whether the apocalyptic apocalyptic Jesus of the book of Revelation trumps the incarnate Jesus of, say, the Sermon on the Mount. I consider the historical Jesus, who is for Christians, including myself, the revelation of God. That's a judgment of faith in an historical character. He was nonviolent. As I said before, I trust Pilate's judgment (laughs) above all else. He's he's a nonviolent revolutionary as the revelation of God. So if you are a Christian and you accept that Jesus is the revelation of God, the image of God, the Lamb of God, the Word of God, the Son of God, all those titles, to express this is what God looks like in sandals. That's the basic faith of a Christian. Hmm. Then what we have done within Christianity, we have done. But where do we in the New Testament encounter the, quote, violent or apocalyptic Jesus? Above all else, in the book of Revelation, Though already in the Gospels, Jesus is, across the Gospels historically, Jesus tends to be getting more and more nasty. He sometimes gets mean. Rhetorically. Yes. Rhetorically. He's even mean to his mother at one point. Well, as you go across the Gospels, he's much nastier (laughs) to his contemporaries in John than he is in Mark. Uh So I think what is happening as later Christians as later, let me be careful, as later Christian Jews are being pushed out of the synagogue and excluded from the synagogue, they get nastier, well, so are their opponents, Mm -hmm. but that nastiness is projected back onto the mouth of Jesus. So it doesn't surprise me that Matthew, for example, maybe in the 80s, has other non-Christian Jews debating with him and using nasty language and calling one another names. That doesn't surprise me. So your advice to the believing Christian, uh, believing in the sense of nonviolence and the pervasiveness and and salvation through love. Your advice to such a believing Christian when he runs into Jesus being, quote, nasty, is what? Check the sources. Read the text. For example, how come a text in Mark where Jesus simply says, if they reject you, just get out of there. The same text in Matthew, who is using Mark, by the way, says, get out of there, and woe to that thing, they're going straight down to hell. Jesus' rhetoric gets nastier as you go from Mark into Matthew and Luke. Time and time again, you can see it, and it's very nasty in John. I understand it because the people are experiencing opposition, but it's Jesus who speaks for them. You, Dom, were one of the leading members of the so-called Jesus Seminar, which worked for many years, essentially to examine Jesus speaking as represented in the New Testament and to uh, evaluate whether he really did say this or that or whether it was attributed falsely to him. Uh, Is that your basic answer, that 
when it comes to whether Jesus really said all these nasty things, quote, uh, he never said them. Well, I will simply ask you, <clears throat> it's a consensus of scholarship that Matthew and Luke use as a major source, the Gospel of Mark. Yeah. That means you can read Mark and you can see what Matthew and Luke do with it. I will simply say, rest my case. Read what Matthew and Luke do time and time again with Mark as their source. Just for simple. So yes. Mark, Mark gives us much more of the real Jesus than do. And I don't want to make it same as if Mark is writing pure history. Here's what's going on. If you start with Jesus and you go, say, 60 years into the future, mm -hmm. slowly but steadily, more and more of his fellow Jews are saying no to the Christian Jewish option. Probably after the war, maybe of 66 to 74, when the Gentiles have done it again, maybe the parting of the ways had happened. So now, if I'm Matthew and I'm writing in the 80s and I'm really fighting with my fellow, maybe my fellow uh, Pharisees, I'm a Christian Pharisee, and you're a non-Christian Pharisee. You're calling me names, and I'm calling you names. I'm calling you a hypocrite. I'm calling you a brood of viper. But I have Jesus doing it. So instead of me saying it, I'm Matthew, and I think you're going to hell, I have Jesus 50 years earlier saying, you're going to hell. You can read it in Matthew. You can have Jesus in chapter 5 of Matthew <laughs> saying, don't call people names. And by 23, he's telling you that you're going straight to hell because you're... <laughs> brood of vipers and hypocrites. And you um, come out, uh, I think, with this to summarize and, uh, and oversimplify uh, your view. But don't you basically tell us that if you want something approximating the real Jesus, the place to look for it is the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Uh, and I was pushing the question earlier, what, what's happening in the great division between in the Christian world between those who see Jesus as essentially a metaphor for love, for decency, for community, and those who see the apocalyptic Jesus as the real Jesus. What's, uh, does the Sermon on the Mount reconcile the two? Or should it be taken as reconciling the two? Um, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is, again, more a focus on his teaching and, and the, the way of life, right? The yeah. practices. And mm -hmm. I think that, that the other is more... Um, I mean, the, 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 as you know, the historically, the problem is, is that, is that the Jesus. There are certain pieces of the tradition, even phrases that have been used to legitimize all kinds of agendas, anything from violent agendas to right-wing mm -hmm. agendas, whatever. So, I mean, the, that's the problem: is that people pick and choose. You know, they they go and find what they want to legitimate what they their own ideology. Um, if so, in a sense, I would I would agree with Don that the that. If you're looking for Jesus' ideology, so to speak, it's mm -hmm. in the sermon. I mean, if if I don't think he has an ideology, but I mean, he's got a vision, and the social yeah. vision is in is in those that compendium of teachings where the kind of you know aphoristic wisdom, subversive mm -hmm. wisdom, kind of gathered together there. And uh, I mean, the resurrection account that you read later, I mean, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded refers back to those teachings, right? Do what I say. I mean, mm -hmm. this is this is a way of life. It's a way of life, and that to me, that's where the real divide is. It's on the way of life not just on what you say you believe. You can say you believe anything. Yeah. You know, um, it doesn't matter. What matters is how is what you do, how you how you embody what you believe, which is Judaism, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's even in the sermon, because Jesus, in the sermon, I don't think this is Jesus speaking, I think it's Matthew speaking. He, he talks way, about those who say, Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say. Yeah. Do. Mm -hmm. By the way, who's that Matthew who's speaking? It, it is the... 
the unknown author of the first gospel in our present New Testament to whom the name Matthew has been given. Yeah. Those, is, is there likely a single author? Uh, yeah, yeah. He may well be representing a community, of course, yeah. and speaking yeah. for a community, and he better have a community supporting him to get this thing published, as it were. Yeah. It's going to be expensive. So yes, he speaks for a community, without a doubt. But this doesn't smell to me like committee work. And is that community the Jewish Christians of Jerusalem, basically? Um, the only argument to locate it has to come from the text itself. It doesn't seem to me like it's Jerusalem. It doesn't seem like Jerusalem. But that's about all we can say. What you can see internally, I would say, this would be my interpretation, Matthew probably was not only a Jew, but a Pharisee even. Mm -hmm. And he's debating, right. I think, within the scribal circles of Pharisees. Mm -hmm. And he would probably call himself a messianic Pharisee, maybe. And I'm, if I'm opposing him, I'm a non-messianic Pharisee. And since this is a very much in-house debate, it can get really nasty. We call one another names, probably, in this debate. And I, I say again, the only problem is that Matthew doesn't just say, I am Matthew and I think you're wrong and I think you're going straight to hell. Mm. He has Jesus say, you're wrong and you're going straight to hell. And this is the same Jesus who says, don't call names. But you see Matthew as Pharisaic, and it's... Mm -hmm. I, I think so. I mean, it's certainly scribal. But what interests me there so much is that, in essence, contemporary Juda Judaism, as it evolved from the, the, from the first century to the present, yeah. uh, rabbinic Judaism is based upon the Pharisees. That is, modern ra rabbis are the descendants of the Pharisees. But if, if you located yourself in the year 50... You could say, simplifying it grossly, there are the major types of Judaism are Pharisaic Judaism, Sadducean Judaism, Essene Judaism, and Christian Judaism, or Messianic Judaism. Uh -huh. You could say that. The what what about groups. Temple Judaism? Uh, that's Sadducean Judaism. That's just Primarily, Sadducees, but everyone accepts the Temple. All mm -hmm. four groups accept the Temple, yeah. but the Sadducees are running it. So you could say, these are the four main divisions of Judaism. Now, after the Great War, the Sadducees are gone, the Essenes are gone. There's only two, Christian Judaism and Pharisaic Judaism. Yeah. Th those are going to be the future. And those really are the split mm -hmm. within Judaism. It's not really that Christianity is a break off from Judaism. It's that mm -hmm. these are the, 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 the two, mm -hmm. the analogy has been used years ago, these are the two children of the same mother. Mm -hmm. And does this then have explanatory value for the major anti-Semitic theme or one of the two or three major anti-Semitic themes being that the Jews are, quote, the killers of Christ. They are Christ killers. Well, it starts, it starts with, the, with that time. The more and more these two groups call one another names. Yeah. And if we, if we had actually what people were saying about Matthew, I am convinced they would be as nasty as Matthew says about them. But I say again, Matthew doesn't do it. It says Jesus who's doing it. Mm -hmm. So what I, Matthew, think about you my fellow Jews, in the year 80, let's say, I'm going to have Jesus say to his fellow Jews in the year 30. And I don't think Jesus did that. He had his own debates, different debates. I've pushed a few times the question that I've avoided or I, that I've delayed. Let me now press it upon you quite simply. What about the divisions within Christianity? There is a great movement uh, known as ecumenicism, supposedly, looking forward to the time when all of the separate denominations and, and trends in Christianity will somehow reunify and a new consensual Christianity uh, will have emerged. 
That's not likely, is it? I don't think it's likely at the level at which it functions. That is to say, I mean, ecumenism that tries to work out theological differences to find out common common ground theologically is, you know, it continues to be. It's yeah, it's, it just seems like a no-win situation. But I think ecumenism on the ground does work, and you see it all the time where you have communities of faith, um, Christian, but even across religions, cooperating. Um, I think in a way that they're actually trying to live out um, the vision of the kingdom cooperatively for social change. I mean, I, I think that to me is a form of ecumenism, but that's not the way ecumenism gets represented. It gets represented as kind of this high-level mm-hmm. theological debate. And um, the standard divisions within Christianity are essentially denominational. You can put some denominations on one side of the was Jesus God issue mm-hmm. and other denominations on the other side, can't I, you? I and some denominations straddle and and uh, ambiguify or otherwise uh, avoid commitment. I, I'm not convinced any longer that denominations are really that important. Mm-hmm. The major division for me across Judaism yeah. and across Islam and across Christianity is between, let me use it crudely for the moment, between the right wing and the left wing. Yeah, However you explain the two of them and all the, what, what is at stake, that, div- that what a horizontal division is becoming far more important than any of the denominational divisions. And that's true, I think, also. Are the, what, what does one mean by right wing and left wing with regard to the spectrum of Christianity? Well, for example, I would say, is everything about the next world or about this world? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That would be one to start off with. Mm-hmm. It's not between whether Jesus is divine or not. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, as a historian and a Christian, I know as a historian that in the first century, any human being who had done something of extraordinary value for the human race, was considered to be divine. That was their language. Hercules was divine because he saved people. Um, Caesar was divine because he brought peace. So if you want to claim in the first century that for us, Jesus has done something of extraordinary value for the human race, you have no other language than to say, of course he's human, but he's also divine. That's their language. But that's the left wing. No, the left wing recognizes the history. The right wing sort of doesn't seem to recognize history at all. Uh-huh. Doesn't, doesn't say, what did this mean for the first people who said it? Mm-hmm. It sort of reads, I know what it means. It's somehow fallen down from heaven to me. So right wing Christian, by right wing then in Christian uh, thought, particularly as related to uh, the sacred texts, uh, that would be the fundamentalist position. It'll be much more... I would make a distinction between literal and fundamentalism. A literalist is somebody who reads it literally. If I'm really dealing with a literalist, I would say, okay, you take the resurrection literally, I take it metaphorically, let's see what a difference in meaning it has for us. Maybe it You'd rather not use the, uh, the term fundamentalism no, no. as a characterization. No, no. A fundamentalist is a literalist who tells you if you're not a literalist, right. you're not a Christian. Right, okay. Or a, a Jew or a Muslim. Yeah. A fundamentalist is not... What's wrong with fundamentalism is not to read it literally. It is to tell you if you don't, you're not a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, Christian, whatever we're talking well, about. Well, isn't there an awful lot of fundamentalism around it? Doesn't it persist? And doesn't it, for that matter, uh, review your wonderful books negatively? The most dangerous thing in the world for me at the moment is religious-based violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, The most dangerous thing, because it threatens the world. It didn't threaten the world in the first century. It does it now. Religion-based mm-hmm. violence. 
you know, for years, politically, we kind of trusted that Stalin wouldn't do something really stupid. I don't have that faith in anyone who has a religious-based mm. belief in another world better than this, and we're going And at it. this moment in history, does that, for you, refer particularly to, um, to Muslim violence? No, it refers to me Christianity first, because that is the religion for which I'm primarily responsible. And we have a, a dangerous, in our own text, our sacred text, uh -huh. there's a vision. We shouldn't be violent, but God will do it for us. Mm. Now, eventually, if, if God is violent, then what start, what's wrong with getting with the program? Jump-starting this apocalypse. Yeah. So the idea of a violent God is what I'm interested in. Uh, we shall continue along these lines, but it is time for me to invite a um, response from our listeners, either a response via telephone or via email. If you want to be heard and talk directly uh, on our program, then give us a call quickly at 847 475 1590-847-475-1590. If you'd rather get your views, questions, or opinions across uh, through email, the email address is milt, M-I-L-T, at 1590wcgo.com. Milt at 1590wcgo.com. We return uh, directly, that is to say within two or three minutes, to John Dominic Crossan and Raymond Pickett first this. We will be going to the uh, messages from our listeners shortly, <clears throat> by email or, for that matter, by phone. Uh, we look forward to phone calls, but we get more email. Uh, I'd love to have some more phone calls. You do that by just dialing up 847-475-1590, 847-475-1590. And for email, as I said only a few minutes ago, uh, it's milt at uh, simply uh, 1590 wcgo.com. Before we uh, begin to look at those emails which have already come in and others that are probably coming in right now, I don't quite know how to connect it, but it's on my mind, as it's on just about everybody's mind these days. Um, a number of Christians, uh, decent Christians, obviously, uh, were killed by a young man, mad, fanatic, what was he? We don't know yet. We'll learn more about it down in Charleston. I've literally been in that church. Mm. Charleston's a wonderful mm -hmm. city for mm -hmm. uh, a little recreation and uh, and exploration. Mm. And uh, I've been there twice, I guess, just as a tourist. And I do remember once going into that church and, in fact, talking to somebody who was a vestryman or something who had some connection with running the place or maintaining the place uh, one way or another. This is many, many years ago, mm -hmm. but I do remember that church. Um, I've just raised it. I don't know what to say about it. Mm -hmm. How does it connect to what we're talking about today? Or um, does it? Yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, I, I, so a couple things. I would say that uh, beginning with Jesus' movement, but as it spread throughout the empire, the two of the main kind of qualities or characteristics of that movement were, were um, inclusivity and they were, they were multi-ethnic. I mean, beginning with Jesus, the fact that there's this sort of kind of open space and this was somewhat distinctive in the ancient world i think that that there were that you had people from different classes different ethnicities kind of gathered so i i you know i, I so when you see it yeah i mean so i think that's important i think that's important at the, at a practical level that that anything that's incongruent with with that kind of radical inclusivity radical hospitality is somehow at odds with with jesus and with 
with Christianity, I, I would say. I mean, I, I, I mean, there are no words to respond. Well, the murders that he did were clearly yeah comprised a great non-Christian and anti-Christian act. Yeah, and is it possible to put it in a wider framework? Is it possible to hold to your own faith and your own religion with absolute integrity? without denigrating the dignity and the existence of other faiths. If you say, for example, my faith is the only way it is. This is the only truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is that acceptable? It is if it is the language of love, of enthusiasm, of particularity. If it is the language of a loved person saying to the beloved, you are the most beautiful person in the world, knowing, of course, that their neighbor may be saying the same to somebody else. That's the language of particularity. To say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life as a Christian is absolutely true, except you must know. You must know with absolute fidelity that the Jew or the Muslim or the Hindu may be saying the same to Krishna or whoever. You must know that. It's the language of particularity, not the language of exclusivity. And we do have, after all, a long history of religious wars between uh, different major religions, surely between Muslim and Christian at various points, and certainly now, once again. Uh, but you, we have such wars, literally wars, fought uh, in a way that kills lots and lots of people. Yes. Within Christianity, uh, the Protestant-Catholic division uh, agitated Europe for some 30 years and killed how many people? I don't know. They went down for 100 Millions, years, actually. probably. Yes. What, how does one reconcile that with what, you, what you, you're talking about in this new book? The only thing I would try to do is make certain that no religion thinks that God is violent. If they want to be violent, just do it <laughs> yourself. Mm. Don't say you're getting it from God. Uh -huh. I mean, that's the one thing I would want to cauterize absolutely, and I mean absolutely. Mm. Where do you get it that God says that? Well, our text says that. Yes, but God didn't write your text. Mm -hmm. You projected onto well, but what, God. But what's the sociological fact? Do we, or the historical fact, do we find as much violence generated by religious difference as we find violence in essentially non-religious, the non-religious sectors of the world. I think you might argue that we've had as much yeah. religious warfare and religious violence as uh, purely secular violence. Yeah, although, I mean, I, I, mean I, I, don't, I don't know that I can do an analysis of that, but I think even when you have religious violence, often underneath it, there are kind of socioeconomic mm -hmm. other kinds of issues. So it gets couched in the name of I mean, it's it's again, it's about how religion gets used, not not it's not yeah, that it's a, a gender, good, very good, a gender, gender a very good point. point. That's yeah. a, religion could yeah. be a cover story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's probably the way it was, for example, in my own homeland in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. I don't think it really was about Catholic Protestant as such, as such. Mm -hmm. That was just an easy way of keeping the two groups identified. Mm -hmm. uh, what were the two real groups? Well, the real group is those I think who wanted to be part of of Great Britain. And yeah. those who want to be part of Ireland, and also it was hugely socioeconomic. It was working, working class and middle class. Well, it was yeah. really working class. If you went into the rich suburbs of Belfast, yeah. you had Catholic living right next to Protestant, and they weren't blowing up one another's homes. It was in the poor sections of Belfast, uh -huh. living right with one another, that, that horror happened. That's where they killed one another. That's where they killed one another. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, uh, we're going to pause right now, the usual reasons, and then we'll go to the phones. I see a Dave is waiting to talk with us, and we'll turn to him right after this. And directly back to Professor Jean-Dominic Crossan, 
Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at DePaul University, and Professor Raymond Pickett, who is Professor of the New Testament at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. And we will go directly to the phones. Uh, Dave from Chicago joins us. Are there any churches that embrace modern biblical scholarship like you've been talking about? I'm a Protestant, but I do not attend church on Sunday because I have never found a local church that uses the modern 20th century theology taught at seminaries such as the Lutheran School of Theology. What a very interesting and valuable question. Yeah, Yes, I, I would say so. I mean, I think, um, I think a lot of the mainline denominations, I mean, there's always a range, but... I mean, this is the stuff we teach in seminary, mm-hmm. so it's a question of whether, you know, how people represent that. But I, I certainly know within my own denomination, including the own, my church that I go to in Logan Square, that 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 sort of reflects this this kind of perspective. Absolutely. So John Dominic Crossan would be welcome, uh, and his preachment would be welcome. Yeah, oh, of uh, course. In many Lutheran churches. Oh, of course, he'd be he'd yeah. be a celebrity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, are there any online churches that take this approach? I don't know online myself. Uh, I'm invited to to speak in churches all across the country in Canada regularly and to preach on Sundays and across all denominations, except actually Roman Catholic and Southern Baptist. But all other denominations seem to be open to this. Not every church of every denomination, mm-hmm. but churches in every denomination. Right. But of course, Reyes could tell you more about Chicago, actually. Now, it's really quite interesting that you mentioned you're not being invited to Catholic churches. You are, of course, of Catholic background. And were you not once uh, a uh, uh, studying for the priesthood? No, I was a monk for 19 years. You were a monk, yes. And a priest for 12. You, you weren't merely studying for the priesthood. You were no, sent, no, I was a priest. You were ascended to the priesthood. I was ordained in Chicago in 1957. There we are, yeah. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you leave? And how did you leave? Um, intolerable situation with the car- then Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, was Cardinal Cody. He asked my superior to show cause within one week why I shouldn't be put out of the diocese. Because you were already writing the stuff that... Well, it had to do with the... This was 1968. It had to do with the papal encyclical uh-huh. on birth control, which most of us theologians thought was wrong. I see. And said so. Mm-hmm. I kind of said that I was an American, but that Nixon was wrong about Vietnam, and I was a Catholic, and the Pope was wrong about birth control. I thought I really annoyed everyone. And you said that as a priest, and that led the cardinal... Archbishop to immediately there was a, mm. a letter, to get rid of you. There was a letter. No, well, he couldn't do that, but he sent a letter to my superior. Yeah, saying why shouldn't I be put out of the diocese? That wasn't. That was when I decided. Okay, it's yeah. time to go. Yeah, fascinating. And our thanks to that caller. Let me go to. We're open for additional calls. Of course, eight four seven four seven five fifteen ninety, and to additional email, and that goes to Milt. Uh, at 1590wcgo.com. Here, then, is another, or here's the first email. What do we know about Jesus beyond what we read in the Gospels? Even in the Gospels, he doesn't appear on the scene until he is 30. We understand that he was um, in the temple at least once, teaching the teachers. That's an incident from his childhood, supposedly. Uh, What could have happened to him to all of a sudden take a revolutionary turn at 30? Um, well, there, there are two questions there. So we don't we don't know a lot beyond the Gospels. That came up earlier. I mean, there are some apocryphal Gospels that actually do, you know, sort of tell stories about when he was a child and all that, but they're mm-hmm. later. Um, 
I mean, I think that the, I mean, the way, the only thing you can infer from the sources that we have is that Jesus began under the auspices of John the Baptist ministry. There's a lot more about John in extra biblical sources. And, and so he was a disciple of John's. And I think, I mean, I think that what happened is that when John was arrested and executed, that that, that then was the catalyst for, for his movement to some extent. Yeah. I would agree completely, and there's no surprise that we know nothing about Jesus before, let's call it his public life, because Caesar Augustus, when he wrote his memoir, as it were, begins with, at the age of 18. Mm. Well, we know all sorts of things happened before he was 18, but when he hit the public sphere, that's when he starts his story. So there's nothing unusual about not knowing anything about Jesus Mm. before the public life, as it were. As a matter of mere historical quibble, you remember, in fact, we talked about it just before we went on the air today, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the claim a few years ago made by a few Americans who had been over to Israel where they had seen the object, the object being an ossuary, which is a uh, casket into which the bones of the dead are placed ultimately. And this ossuary uh, had printed on it or stenciled into it uh, supposedly way back from the time of the first century, the words, uh, uh, James, the brother of Jesus. That was supposedly verification that uh, a real Jesus of Nazareth did exist. I don't think it does that at all, and I don't think we needed to do it in any case, because the majority of scholars accept that Jesus was an historical figure. It's really not, I'm going to use the word seriously discussed in scholarship. There are some scholars who think Jesus didn't exist, but then there's some people who think the Holocaust didn't happen. But Yes, to be sure. But quite apart from that, the finding of an ossuary, a bone uh, receptacle uh, marked James, the brother of Jesus, is kind of exciting, is it not? It's exciting for what it tells us about the first century. It tells us what we knew already. There were a lot of Josephs in the first century, a lot of Jesuses in the first century, Yahshua and that no doubt this is a possible relationship. But even if it was the, the hussery of Jesus, I'm going to say, so what? It's his program that counts, not yeah. his bones. Uh, well, we also know where he was. There's an official location of his burial in Jerusalem, is there not? Well, if, if that's where he was buried, it's, it would be nice if you find an empty tomb and somebody said, this is the bones of Jesus. But I'm going to insist on something if I was Paul, Paul the Apostle, and I was mm. told we found the bones of Jesus, okay? I think what I, Paul the Apostle, would say is, were there the marks of crucifixion on it? I think that's the only question he'd want to know. Sure. He would figure that everything else doesn't change. But if, there, if, if he wasn't crucified, then yes, we have to think a bit differently. Um, as a former Catholic priest, <clears throat> what was your attitude when you were a Catholic priest about all the relics that are to be found in Catholic churches, or at least great Catholic cathedrals all over the world. Okay, let me go to metaphor. Bones, teeth, earlobes of Jesus, and so on. I mean, it's terribly human. It's like pictures on your desk, in a way. Are they authentic? I don't think so at all. But I would say butterflies don't make a summer, but summer makes butterflies. So, you know, it's the fervor of religion wants to be able to touch. And what is valid there is that Christianity is an historic religion. You can't get away from history. Mm. So whether you can find the, you know, the <laughs> some of John the Baptist's head or something like that, I don't think so, but I don't mock it. Let me put it that way. Um, another email. 
Um, you did a show, this is addressed to me, on philosophy the other day. We did, in fact, do that with two uh, professors of philosophy talking about what goes on mm. in philosophy departments or what they think and argue about. Uh, so you did a show on philosophy the other day. Where does Jesus fit into that discussion, considering uh, his very quotable contributions to life and its meaning? Can we put Jesus in a particular school of philosophy? Um, well, interesting. I, yeah, I, I mean, I think people have actually tried to put him within the cynic movement. Um, your, your book actually comes close to that, I think. I mean, yeah. that is a sort of a kind of protest philosophical movement. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, but the, the cynics were, were pagans who mocked yeah. openly right, with, with street theater the, the idea of Caesar Augustus all the way back to, to Alexander. They mocked it. They didn't just speak against it. They went out and did anti-theater and they laughed about these, this Alexander and all the rest of it. So, yes, if I was a, a pagan and I was listening to Jesus, a pagan now, mm -hmm. I would say to myself, He's, he's some kind of a cynic philosopher, right? He's, mm -hmm. he's saying, you know, blessed are the poor. That sounds like a cynic. Now, a Jew would say to him, no, 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 he's a prophet. And I would probably say to my right. Jew, well, what's a prophet? And, and we'd end up saying, well, both of them say that this overweening pride of the 1% of the ancient Roman world is irrelevant. You should be able to live without it, with bare, <laughs> you don't even need a begging bowl. They were the mendicants of the ancient world, mm -hmm. and Jesus would have looked to pagans, not knowing Judaism maybe, right, right. as speaking, actually, cynic philosophy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting response. Um, next uh, email. I used to think that Jesus was a great guy until I heard uh, that he was buddies with a tax collector. Mm. That's said with possibly tongue-in-cheek, but still, um, what are we to make of that? Jesus, he was a friend of bartenders as well, wasn't he? The publicans. Well, we have, we have that story in Matthew. I think, actually, historically, in my view at least, one of the accusations made against Jesus is that he hangs out with, with sinners. Yeah. I think that is like saying at a certain time in our history, you're a pinko or a communist. I think this is the sloganeering slurs of the ancient world, tax collectors and sinners. You hang out with the baddies. I don't think Jesus did particularly go looking out for tax collectors and sinners. I think that's a slur. But having heard that people like Luke say, well, he's, he's there to convert them, I have no doubt. The, um, I was going to yeah, I, I think this is very interesting. There's a, I don't know if you've seen Doug Oakman's uh, interpretation of this, but... Um, he actually makes the case. So when you start to when you start to put Jesus in his sort of socioeconomic um, milieu, there, um, Oakman actually, the scholar argues that um, the Aramaic term for sinner means debtor, and that when Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors, he's actually brokering he's the, actually brokering the deals, relationship. which is kind of an interesting. I mean, I don't. You know, there's no way to prove or disprove that, but I I think those kinds of interpretations are not that far fetched, and if when you start dealing with the material conditions of, of Galilee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, time for our last round of commercials. How would Jesus feel about our stopping for commercials? <laughs> <laughs> Render unto Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> Which we're about to do. And a number of interesting additional emails have come in. Um, uh, try this one. I as I hear your two guests talk about Jesus, I have to wonder since they seem to consider the resurrection a metaphor, 
do they not believe that he will be coming back? Uh, Whomever the Messiah may be, I wish he would get on with it and book travel to our planet. There's too much heartache. Well, yes, and the last word, yes. We, we quoted Matthew earlier in the program, and the last words of Jesus in Matthew are, I will be with you all days until the end of the world. I don't know how somebody comes back who never left. Maybe if we say he's coming back, it's because we don't want him around at the moment because we know exactly what he asked us to do in, in his presence, not in his absence. Well, no, wait, where, where in the New Testament do we have a clear statement of the expectation of a second coming? You have, <coughs> excuse me, you have clear expressions of the second coming throughout the New Testament. Yes. The question is, and it's debated among scholars, do we have it from Jesus? But the word second coming never appears in the New Testament. Right. The word return never appears in the New Testament. You can't have somebody returning if they haven't left. And Matthew, again, I repeat, we quoted from Matthew at the beginning of the program. I will be with you all days. The invention of the return, or the use of that name, I think is a way of flight from the presence of Jesus because we know exactly what he wants Christians to do, which is to live like him. The very words, second coming, do not occur in the New Testament. Absolutely not. The only... Paul uses the word parousia in Greek, which means the celebratory advent of an imperial legate or the Mm -hmm. emperor himself. Jesus is coming back to celebrate a job well done for Paul. In John of Patmos' book of Revelation, he's coming back to destroy evil because we have failed, apparently, to do it, or something like that. These are two very different visions of the consummation, let us call it. I I just wanted to clarify a little bit what we mean by, Mm -hmm. at least what I mean by, Resurrection as a metaphor, because I think people might be inferring that you're you're kind of trivializing trivializing that or being yeah. reductionist. But I I think the resurrection for early believers and even for people now was was an experience as well. In other words, I think there's a connection between metaphor <laughs> and experience. That that is to say, of empowerment, of connection, and and that's linked with other images of new creation, which is the renewal of creation. You know, kind of the renewal of life is. So I, I think, again, the problem for me with resurrection is when it gets reduced to a doctrine or just a, a, like a, a, an intellectualized belief as opposed to a way of talking about something that's real, that's probably a process that has to tell us, but, but is, is about creation and about community and about renewal and those kind of things. So I, I take it very, I don't know you hmm, do too, I, I, I actually take resurrection very seriously. When we say it's a metaphor, we're not, we're not sort of marginalizing it or reducing it, but we're, we're saying it's a way of talking about something that's real. You say enunciation of a doctrine puts you off. Isn't it in the very nature of all religions that they do state doctrines sooner or later, that you find some foundational doctrines which uh, are the base of the religion? And they're usually, we talked about the one in the fourth century, they're usually very much attuned to a time. Supposing Christians, for example, supposing in the 1930s said, we decree that no Christian will wear a jackboot. Okay, that makes sense to me in the 1930s. No Christian is ever allowed to say, Sieg Heil. I understand that. In the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Go to the 1920s or the 1960s, it doesn't make any sense to me. Doctrines are contemporary, and that means they're temporary. Mm. If you're contemporary, you're temporary. So the vision 
lasts. The doctrine, and it may be useful or, by the way, unuseful, comes and goes and is always put in the, the, the argot of the moment. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his, is his last prophet. Uh, that was enunciated uh, in the uh, beginning of Islam, and it's enunciated today. That's a persisting doctrine. That's right. I would, it has, it's not undergoing change. I don't want to say that's a doctrine. I really think that's a, what I would call a vision. By a vision, I don't mean a, a um, ecstatic vision. I mean a way of seeing reality. It's, mm. it's not really just a doctrine. I mean, it, it, I, I have no problem, by the way, with saying there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Because for me, Jesus is not just the prophet of God. Jesus is the image of God, and it's the lifestyle of Jesus that images God for me. Mm. So I, I think it's a, a more an enabling vision than just simply a doctrine. Since I've stumbled into in that direction just now, uh, namely Islam, um, of course, Jesus and Mary, as well as Abraham and so on, uh, all figure in the Quran. Right. What does classic Islam make of Jesus? That he's a prophet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a great prophet. He's a great prophet, yeah. And he was born of a virgin. Mm -hmm. They do not... It is disputed. I'm going to be very careful. It is disputed whether Jesus actually was crucified. There's a way of reading it to say he wasn't actually crucified. There's a way of reading it also to say that he was, but of course that wasn't the end of everything. Um, here's another email. Um, hold on one second. Um, I heard your caller asking about churches. I'm not sure what any churches locally could offer him, but I can recommend a good book. What do local churches offer uh, their parishioners or their attendees or whatever? Hmm. And are there good and, ba and bad churches? Are there good and bad modes of uh, Christian worship when, it, when you come right down to uh, the elements of worship in a particular location with a particular pastor or particular interpreter. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be in the position of, you know, saying what's good and what's bad. I mean, what would be good in my view would be something that was consistent with the sort of vision we've been articulating mm -hmm. and the depiction of Jesus. Um, um, I think churches offer a lot. I mean, I think that that they they offer um, a sense of community and connection to to God and to one another in a sense that that has real impact in, it can have real impact in the world. And frankly, that would be one of my criteria, is, 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 is does a church benefit the community in which it lives somehow? I mean, that to me would be a criteria of, of a good church. Um, I don't want to say, I mean, I don't know that they're bad churches unless, they're, unless they promote violence or mm -hmm. exclusion or something like that. Um, but I think a lot of churches are clubs. You know, they're very, they're sort of just social clubs where like-minded people gather to reinforce that. Um, and I think there are churches that really um, mm -hmm. extend themselves beyond that that kind of homogeneity and 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 really try to to connect to 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 the world in a way that is life giving. And I I think that's a good thing. A quick and personal complaint, personal uh, as representative of my religious community, um, uh, Christianity and Catholicism, even more particularly, has had very very strong anti-Semitic leanings at certain times, yeah. and uh, those times aren't totally gone by a long shot. No, and one of the things we have to watch for very carefully is that 
there's a certain amount in the New Testament of, I'm going to call it anti-Judaism, because yes, it's, there is. it really is theological anti-Judaism. It's not really racial anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. but theological anti-Judaism can become, and did become in Europe, the seedbed from which racial anti-Semitism could arise and could be sort of tolerated, because after all, as Mussolini told the Pope, you people have been saying this thing for years, haven't you? So I think we have to be very careful in reading the New Testament that we understand what the debates are, that it's a debate that at its nastiest, it is a debate within Judaism, yeah. within the family, and therefore, like all intra-family debates, bitter. Yeah, I, I agree with this. This is actually a real concern of mine, and I, I know that my, my, myself and my colleagues, and I know in a lot of other seminaries, we're very careful to address this issue of anti-Judaism and that's, that becomes anti-Semitism. And in terms of preaching and being really sensitized to that, I mean, I, I actually teach students that they, when they preach, they need to imagine they're Jews in the congregation in terms yeah. of how, the, how things are heard. Because I do think this is a problem. But again, the other thing is contextualizing it. I, I agree. I mean, I think the, what becomes anti-Judaism begins as intra-Jewish conflict. It's Jews arguing with Jews yeah. about, mm -hmm. about things. And then when it becomes a Gentile phenomenon, then it becomes anti-Judaism. And Jews get scapegoated. And that, but, but even if you recontextualize it, you can't undo 2,000 years of anti-Semitism. So I, I just want you to know that a lot of us teaching, I think a lot of us, really take this as a serious problem not to be whitewashed. Yeah. We have come to the end of the available time. Yeah. It's been uh, an outstanding discussion from my point of view uh, because of your presence and because of what you've been telling us today. You are, in case uh, it has slipped your mind, uh, Raymond Pickett, Professor uh, of New Testament at the Lutheran School of Theology here in Chicago, and John Dominic Crossan, Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at DePaul University. And we will be back again on Monday, directly uh, at noon.